Well, just uh, in case you don't know me, I'm Graham. Um, and uh, every now and again I, I preach a sermon. But uh, uh, I found Obadiah in the Old Testament. It's uh, not as easy as Isaiah to find. It's uh, jammed in between Amos and Jonah, if you're sort of lost for that. Well, there's a desire for vengeance that we have sometimes when we're treated badly. And uh, often we replay the scene in our mind and we come out on top. Uh, oftentimes we want to pay back with interest, sort of, you know, the only thing that we want to pay back with interest is uh, to take vengeance. And the same thing happened to Jerusalem when they were destroyed by the Babylonians and the Babylonians were helped by Edom. And uh, if you want to read Psalm 137, you can uh, hear their cry for vengeance and it's a cry that God answered. But before we look more at that, we need to have some background. Uh, the background's fairly important. So there are four, four points to remember. I think I've got four, yep. Um, the first thing is sibling, sibling rivalry. Uh, it's common in many families that have more than two, more than one child. Um, each one trying to get the better of the others. Uh, one psychologist made the, uh, the comment, he said, parents want schools to stamp out bullying when they can't even stop their own children from fighting. Um, so that's the first thing we need, uh, sibling rivalry. We need to remember that because Obadiah's writing about Edom. That's the second point. And Edom was the nation that was descended from Esau. You might, might remember uh, Jacob and Esau. They were brothers. And uh, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And uh, so the people of Edom and the people of Israel were brothers. But the rivalry between them was carried on by the descendants and went on for years and years. And then we've got the third point to remember is God's promise to Abraham. And uh, God's promise to Abraham is uh, written in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and I'll read them for you. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we need to remember there that uh, what was promised was land and blessing, a cursing of those who will dishonour you, and through you all the families of the earth will find a blessing. And the fourth thing, and perhaps the most uh, important that we need to remember tonight, is the structure of God's revelation in the Bible. Because we're going to move from one part to another. So the Bible basically is, uh, Genesis 1 to 3 is a prologue. Uh, we get the, the kingdom of God and the entry of sin, uh, where it all goes bad. But then we have three sections where uh, God uh, lets us know what his kingdom will be like. So in an, and it worked, it's worked out in an, an historical kingdom from Abraham through to Solomon and uh, it's the point of Solomon, it reaches its high point and then it just declines. But what we have in this historical kingdom are the concepts that we need to be able to understand the kingdom of God. So concepts such as an exodus or a liberation from bondage, redemption, a covenant, a king, a sacrifice, 
creation and the inclusion of Gentiles. But when that all declines, the prophets then come and they say that will all happen again. There will be judgment on Israel, but we're looking forward to a new kingdom. That is a new of everything that was mentioned in those concepts. A new exodus, a new redemption, a new covenant, a new king, a new sacrifice, a new creation, a new life for the Gentiles. And it will be a much glorious kingdom, a much more glorious kingdom than the kingdom from Ab- that was developed from Abraham to Solomon. Then the third uh, point in the structure of the Bible is the fulfilment of those concepts in Jesus, who fulfills the concept of the Exodus, redemption and covenant and so forth, uh, fulfills all that in his life. As he says in, in Mark 1, um, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So that's Jesus' message. It's sort of come to all together in him. And then finally, there's just to wrap it all off, there's the epilogue because the consummation in our experience, what will we sort of incorporate it into that kingdom and what it means, and that will come especially in Revelation. So we've got to remember those four points uh, as we're going through. So Obadiah, his name actually means servant of the Lord. Uh, he lives in the decline of the historical kingdom and he looks forward to the glorious fulfilment. So the historical kingdom is going pear-shaped and he is looking forward to a new and glorious kingdom, which we'll get to in the second half of the book. Now, the prophets uh, in the Bible uh, always have three-point sermons. Uh, The three points are accusation, judgment and restoration, usually against Israel. But this book, Obadiah, was written after the judgment on Israel and the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. So there's no accusation or judgment against Israel that had already happened in 587 BC. But the accusation and judgment now are proclaimed against Edom, Israel's brother, for their part in the judgment of Jerusalem. So Obadiah then focuses on the vindication and the restoration of God's people according to the promises of Genesis chapter 12 of land, blessing, and a cursing of those who curse Israel. And uh, so the Edomites here are not going to get off scot-free. Psalm 73 asks the question, why do the wicked prosper? We often think they do, but when God comes into the equation, no, they don't. And some of the many themes that we'll pick up from Obadiah, we'll look at the sovereignty of God over all the nations, which we remembered in our verses, pardon me, that were mentioned earlier in our service this evening. Uh, human responsibility, vengeance and the justice of God, but particularly the day of the Lord. And I'm using the English Standard Version because it uses the word day. The New Living Translation does not, and it's an important word. Um, and we'll think about the New Jerusalem. So I'm not a good, I'm not a prophet. And so my sermon only has two points. Uh, Firstly, Edom, which is accusation and judgment, and Judah, the second point, the day of the Lord and restoration, from verses 15 to the end. So to look firstly then at Edom, accusation and judgment. This is the historical situation. We're in the historical kingdom, um, actually in its decline. And so verse 1 points off, it's a vision, uh, sets off now with a vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Uh, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. 
Rise up, let us rise up against her for battle. So the voice of the Lord, the Lord is Lord of all the nations. He's not a local God, uh, whether you acknowledge him or not. And he stirs the nations up against Edom. He is behind all that happens. And he uses human agents and their natures, even their sin, to further his purposes. Uh, we're reminded also earlier in the, in the service uh, that uh, God is the God of all the nations. And uh, Jesus had this to say in uh, Mark 14. He said, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Or in Acts 4, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So we're introduced straight away to the fact that God is the one who is controlling what happens in the world. Uh, he is the one who actually moves the nations and stirs them up to rise against Edom. Uh, it's not just them doing their own thing. Uh, God is behind it all. And so we need to make a comment then on the relationship between God exercising his sovereign power and the responsibility that men have to do right and make decisions. So I would say, very, you could do a whole sermon on that, but I'll say very briefly here that God is absolutely sovereign. But this never functions in a way that removes or diminishes human responsibility. We are morally responsible and make real choices for which we are held accountable. But this does not infringe on God's sovereignty. You see, God uses our nature to further his purposes. So Judas, the verse from Acts 4, Judas and Herod and Pontius Pilate were doing what they wanted to do. They couldn't claim to say that, that God made them. We didn't really want to put Jesus to death, but God sort of forced us into it. No, they couldn't say that. They were doing what they wanted to do. God used their nature to accomplish his purpose, um, which was to fulfil his decree that Jesus, Jesus should die. And so in, in this, uh, this uh, chapter here from, from Obadiah, Edom could not claim that they were forced to do this. They did, by their own volition, uh, join in with Babylon in destroying the Israelites. And, but to us it's a great comfort to know that God controls every circumstance of life, even the sin of men. Uh, that is a great comfort, and you can look at the 39 articles if you like, and they will see that, that uh, it says that. Because God then will bring good out of evil. I don't know if you've thought about that. Sometimes we think that this is a terrible situation. We might go crook about COVID. We might have gone crook about uh, the ISIS, um, Arab Spring and so forth that happened a few years ago as a great evil. But Christian numbers are growing rapidly in the Middle East. Um, not only in last year but the year before but this next year the CMS prayer diary has this it says in some locations that's in the Middle East many are turning to Christ in numbers not previously seen the Middle East Reformed Fellowship claimed the same thing in Egypt uh, thousands are turning to Christ in those countries because of the Arab Spring and the ISIS and so forth and even from more college uh, on COVID-19, it says there are encouraging signs that next year's intake of on-campus students will match the bumper cross of 2021. Praise God. 
So the two best years they've had for a long time have been the two years that have been affected by COVID-19. So it's worth thinking about that, that God is in control of all situations. Even sometimes when we think that evil is coming about, God is still there, still furthering his purposes. But back to Obadiah. We've only looked at one verse. Uh, God has used Assyria to punish Israel. The nation of Assyria punished the northern kingdom of, uh, of Israel and then the Babylonians, the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem, uh, in which Edom freely joined in. And Babylon was a one-time ally of Judah in their fight against Assyria. But now they're the ones who destroyed uh, Jerusalem. Uh, and now God will use Edom's allies to punish Edom. Probably a coalition of, of uh, Arab tribes in uh, verse 7. Uh, All your allies have driven you to, uh, to your border, and those at peace with you have deceived you. That's literally men of your covenant have driven you to your border, and men of peace with you have deceived you. They will do the same to Edom that Edom did to the fugitives from Judah, which we'll see that. So Edom then will be judged in verses 2 to 9. So Edom was arrogant and self-confident and will be made low in verses 2 to 4. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who, who live in the clefts of the rock. The word there is actually the name for Petra. You may have seen uh, photos of Petra, the uh, buildings built into the rock. Uh, in your lofty dwelling, it was all very rocky there, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Well, God will, actually. Um, their arrogance and self-confidence was based on their impregnable position uh, in, in the rocks. Um, though you soar aloft like an eagle, in verse 4, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. On their wealth. The wealth was another thing. They sort of saw, well, we're wealthy. They were situated right on the king's highway. And it was a bit like having your own private toll booth. You know, you could sort of, every car that came past, well, you charged. And you got money. You didn't have to do anything. Just put a man there to collect. Uh, and they did that. And they were wealthy because of that. Um, but that was not enough to give them security either. Um, wealth has has a habit of sort of disappearing. Remember the GFC, the, the uh, financial crisis we, we faced in about 2009? Um, and alliances, what happens with alliances? The, all, uh, in the Second World War, many alliances changed. Uh, Russia changed from one side to the other. It was uh, all a bit of a problem. Uh, but wealth, um, I was just sort of thinking about some of the Latin American countries. In Venezuela, not so long ago, and probably still at the same at the moment. Yeah, you wouldn't bother buying toilet paper. You could use the money, the paper money, and be cheaper. It wasn't. It was worthless. It was nothing. And so people, if they, if they, the, the, the president refused to build to uh, print million million bolivar notes. And so if you wanted to buy something and you had some notes and you got a wheelbarrow and wheeled them along uh, to, to pay for them, it was a real mess. Um, you, and they're, they're full of oil. So there's a lot of money there, but it just evaporated. You can't put your um, security or can't base your security on those sorts of things. Philip Knight, who was uh, a worker, a BCA man at Port Headland, uh, who was an Anglican minister there, 
He did a lot of work at the Turner River uh, Rehabilitation Centre and he made this very, very uh, insightful concept um, statement. He said, these people recognise their need for help. They're open to talk about God. Everything else, relationships, work, money, things, has been stripped away. There was no security in those things. The only security that we have really is in God himself, in a sovereign Lord. And the story of the rich fool sort of reminds us of that. And if you remember that story that a guy sort of uh, had a bumper crop and he said, I'll build myself some bigger, better, brighter barns and I'll put all the stuff in there and then I can sit back and take my ease. And then God said, no, 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 tonight your soul will be required of you. Uh, death leveled him off. So there's no security there in those things. And so Edom was going to be brought low. In verses 5 and 6 there, it, the destruction was going to be complete. And uh, it's sort of making a comparison with ordinary thieves. If thieves had come, they would have taken some things but left a lot. Uh, but it says here, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed? Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures, treasures sought out. In other words, that nothing was left, nothing would be left of Edom. It would be complete destruction. And within a few years of Obadiah writing, both Babylon and Edom had disappeared. They no longer existed. They were instruments of God to chastise Judah, but they were responsible for their actions. Therefore, they will be judged. And Malachi wrote these words 150 years later. He says, Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. That's the judgment that fell on uh, Esau, on, on Edom. Now that may seem harsh, but material judgment is not as bad as spiritual judgment. Hell is worse. I'll refer you back to Jody's sermon last week. Uh, it's better to be lame than going to hell with two good feet. Uh, if your feet, or your hands or your feet cause you to, to sin, cut them off. It'd be far better for you to do that. Also in Revelation 6, we have a picture there, a terrible picture of, of the princes and the rulers of the world calling on the rocks, going into caves and calling on the rocks to fall on them and, and hide them from the, 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 the wrath of the Lord and the Lamb. Or in Hebrews 10, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, the judgment is a terrible thing. And it may seem harsh, but Esau knew about the true God. In fact, all the peoples on earth have known about the true God. So we need to get rid of the concept we have in our minds of uh, man starting from slime and gradually sort of becoming a living thing and... Uh, eventually sort of living in caves and dragging his wife by the hair outside with a big club over his shoulder and so forth and becoming um, a bit religious and then finally settling on it. In, in other words, ever evolving to something better because Adam and Eve started with the knowledge of God and we all came from Adam and Eve. Uh, that is the problem. But, we, but most people considered that not important. They considered it an, an interference they don't, didn't want God to tell them what to do. Uh, that was C.S. Lewis's problem. Uh, before he became a Christian, he saw Jesus as the great interferer. That's uh, Jesus, one who's stopping me from doing what I want to do. Um, and Esau was like that. 
Um, and the problem is that with that sort of attitude, true knowledge fades. And that's what happened with Adam and Eve. The true knowledge faded because it wasn't as important as themselves. And we need then to keep on studying the word of God, to keep Jesus before our eyes at all times, or we'll go the same way. One sermon a week is not enough. We'll go like our society. Our Christian heritage has been left behind and we'll end up trusting in our own wisdom and end up with popular religion like Edom and Israel in the Old Testament. And also we'll end up denying God's wrath, his righteous judgment and our need for a sacrifice to avert his wrath. Many church people today are unaware of or deny God's judgment, like Adam and Eve. When Satan tempted them, he said, look, don't believe what God says. He, he told you you would die if you ate the fruit of that tree, but I'll tell you what the real thing is. He's just scared that you'll become a God just like he is, and he doesn't want that. That's why he's put there. So don't take any notice of him. Right? You do your thing. You'll become, you can become a God like he is. That's Satan's deceit. And so we need to present the judgment of God clearly, because if there's no judgment, then we can do as we like. This is the freedom we want in the West, to be able to do as we like. And uh, I'm not a, not a movie buff. I think the last movie I saw was Schindler's List. But uh, in that, the, the commandant freely just shoots the Jewish prisoners. Yeah, just takes a pot shot. Uh, There's an attitude common to many other ordinary people in atheistic Germany or Stalin's USSR or Pol Pot's Cambodia. There's no requirement, no, no account that we have to give and we can do as we like, or we can do as the leader says, who is the strongest man, he's the one who controls the morals. You see, they thought they would never be called to account, and uh, judgment then is a necessary thing in our world. If we don't get it here, we will face it for eternity. And here Edom then gloried in their wisdom, in their alliances, in their might and their riches, but their treasure was pillaged in verse 6. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. His wise men have been destroyed in verse 8. Now, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And the mighty men have been dismayed. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So we need then to beware of pride and arrogance or to think that we are somehow secure or safe. Um, you know, I've got a big superannuation, so therefore I'm happy, uh, I'm, I'm right, I'm content like the rich fool. No, we need to beware of that sort of thing or that I'm an important person and I command and so forth. Um, they lead to the fall. Eli's and Saul's children in 1 Samuel did the same. They fell because they became proud and arrogant. Fortunately for us, the doctrine of grace has been revealed to us that we might avoid that. Because if it's all by grace, then we have nothing to boast about. And so Edom then was judged. But why was Edom judged? And so Obadiah moves on to Edom being accused. So why the disaster? In verse 10... He says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. So Jacob here, not Judah, it was actually Judah, but Jacob because Jacob was the brother of Israel. And it's the kinship uh, which is creating the obligation of Esau to treat his brother well. 
as God told Israel, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. But that produced no response from Edom, rather the age-long antagonism. And uh, when Moses came to the land of Edom and wanted to pass through, they refused, told him he would not be able to pass through. And then they participated in the sacking and the exile of Jerusalem. And uh, the call for vengeance in Psalm 137, the call for vengeance by Israel is, uh, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundation. They were the cheer squad alongside. But now they will reap what they sowed. They were responsible for their actions, even though they were part of God's instrument to judge Judah. In verse 11, we come to the, the centre point then of the accusation. Um, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. That's the central point. They gave no assistance to their brothers. They were a bit like the priest and the Levite in the, in the story of the Good Samaritan. They just passed by on the other side. But even worse, they, in that, if they were in that, uh, the Good Samaritan story, they would have joined the thieves. Um, and they joined the Babylonians who were opposing their brothers. They helped them and got involved with them and, and made profit out of it. And then verses 12 to 14... I think here the, uh, the New Living Translation is probably better because it's rhetorical and uh, the, the Hebrew actually has uh, a command. It's like an imperative, do not gloat, do not do this. But in, in a rhetorical situation, it's you should not have. That's what we need to read. So in verse 12, you should not have gloated over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. You should not have rejoiced over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. You should not have boasted in the day of distress. And so they gloated insolently without pity in verse 12. In verse 13, they entered the gate, that is, they joined in the looting. They, you should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. You should not have gloated over his disaster in the day of his calamity. You should not have looted his wealth in the day of his calamity. And in verse 14, they should not have prevented fugitives escaping been handed them over. Do not stand at, you should not have st stood at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. You should not have handed over his survivors in the day of distress. You see, they did all those things and that's why the judgment came on them. They had a great self-focus. They wished to rise up on the misfortune of others and their problem, the problem of Israel, will make them feel good and more secure because it's not happening to us. We're okay. We're on side with the Babylonians. But the day there in verses 12 to 14 can refer to either good or bad fortune. Here, it's a day of misfortune, of misfortune, their ruin, distress, calamity, disaster, um, distress again. Um, but there are other days to come. And Jerusalem would see another day of distress in 70 AD at the hands of the Romans when the city and the temple were destroyed. But verse 15 brings another day. That is the day of the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. Um, and that day is the day of salvation and judgment, of wrath and mercy. It's the final vindication of God's righteousness, fulfilling his promises to Abraham, of blessing for his people and distress for his enemies. 
So we've dealt then with the accusation and judgment in the narrative of the historical kingdom in its decline. A material bad judgment is bad enough, but it's only a pattern of the spiritual judgment on the day of the Lord, to which day we now move. Uh, because now we're moving into the proje prophetic projection of the kingdom of God and the fulfilment in the New Testament in Christ and in our experience. So Judah then, we go to the second part of the sermon, which is not quite as long, but Judah's the day of the Lord and restoration. It's the last day situation. And so vengeance then is one thing. In uh, verse 3 of Genesis 12, uh, him who dishonours you I will curse. We've had that. But Israel still remains in the gutter. Israel is still exiled in Babylon. It's been destroyed. The city doesn't um, survive. The temple's gone. So what about God's promises of land, blessing, descendants? Has it failed? Well, the day of, of uh, the Lord, the day of judgment and salvation, we find the emphasis there uh, is a day that it will come any time. It's not saying the day is going to be so long in the distance, but it's a day that can come any time, like the return of Christ. It's always imminent. It could be tonight. It could be next week. We don't know. We need to be prepared for it at, at, every, at every stage. But it's the day of vindication of God's righteousness, righteousness, his retribution on all nations, including Edom, that forgot God. And so God's enemies will be judged on that day. In verse 15, uh, second part of that verse, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. So the judgment then will be fair. It'll be exact, an eye for an eye. Exact retribution, not rehabilitation. Rehabilitation is most unfair. Uh, rehabilitation was what the, 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 uh, the principle applied in the Soviet Union, where you could be sent to a, a gulag until you uh, were rehabilitated. In other words, if you were a Christian, until you lost your belief and believed in communism. Uh, the punishment didn't fit the crime. The punishment was there until you changed your mind. But only God can exact vengeance that is fair. Uh, personal vengeance is not required and not called for. We have personal vengeance in our gang warfare in Sydney. You know, one gets, shoots this guy and then that, that family wants to shoot two of the others and, and so they want to pay a bit more back. But as Christians, we need to love our enemies and return good for evil. For Christians, justice is settled on Jesus. He is our representative and our substitute. For people who rebel against God, justice falls on their heads. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. This comes in Deuteronomy 32 and Romans 12 and Hebrews 10. Because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 16 then is a bit of irony. It says, for you have drunk on my holy mountain. So all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. So what does that mean? It means that when, when uh, the Babylonians came and Eden joined with them, then they celebrated the disaster that fell on Jerusalem by carousing on Mount Zion. They got themselves drunk and had a great party. Uh, but now God is saying, well, your drinking will continue, uh, not only by Eden, but also by the nations. But this time it will be the cup of my wrath that you'll be drinking. In other words, the end result will be as though you had never been. You'll be wiped out. Uh, judgment then will be exactly as they did. 
They caroused and they drank, celebrating the destruction of, of Israel. They shall drink the same destruction on themselves. And so God's people will be restored because it's a, it's a day of judgment and salvation. And so now we move beyond the earthly to the fulfilment in Christ's stage. In verse 17 it says that there will be safety in Mount Zion. In Mount Zion, that is Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. So that's the new Jerusalem. It's the only holy Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem, the old historical city was sinful and idolatrous. But the true city of God is holy. And to that the escaped exile returnees will meet there. And it's a holy place because God is there. Therefore there is no evil that will come upon that place. And they are secure from defilement and heathen assault because God is there. And in verses 17 and 18, it's the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. And in verse 18, the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. So Jacob then will be reinstated in his land and Jacob and Joseph, that is the north and the south kingdoms that were separated, Israel and Judah in the, in the, in the south, uh, they will be reunited under one king. And that, of course, was fulfilled in, in Christ. And Acts 1.8, where we read that the gospel went to Jerusalem, uh, to Judea, Samaria, and all come under Christ and to the nations as well. But the historical return, because we could read it that way, was not the fulfilment. In Nehemiah's evaluation, when Nehemiah was the one who came back, they built, he built the walls around the new Jerusalem. In Nehemiah 9, he makes this comment. He says, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. In other words, the return was not the fulfilment that they were expecting. Malachi also makes the same comment that the, that was not a holy city. Now, the Lord's name in Jerusalem was profaned in the corrupt sacrifices in Malachi's time. So that was not the fulfilment. In fact, historically, God's saving purposes only involved a faithful remnant of, of the people, not the nation. And ultimately, the true servant of Isaiah was the only true Israelite. That is, Jesus was the only true Israelite who fulfilled the, uh, the, 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 the concept of the covenant. And so the true fulfilment then is Jesus. Right? In Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And in Hebrews we read these words in chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, uh, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. By his death, Jesus gathered into one all God's people. Uh, and that then will consume Edom. As they come together, Edom will be consumed because there will be salvation for God's people but destruction for his enemies. And the people of God are involved in the rule of, of, of Christ. They are the instruments, or we are the instruments, of God's judgment. Hence the fire and the flame in verse 18. The fire and flame remind us of the presence of God. God's people then will share in, God's, in, in Christ's victory by obedience to him. Uh, in fact, they, we are united with Christ. Uh, in Daniel 7, we see there that the, the one like a son of man comes and to him is given dominion, glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. But in verse 18 we read, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So there's a unity between the Son of Man and the people of God. And uh, in verses 19 and 20 the Hebrew is unclear so we won't be spending much time then but the general gist is quite clear. That is that the promised land will be regained. There will be restored covenant blessing of Genesis 12 right from the south, the Negev, to the hills of Zarephath is about 17k south of Sidon. And the, in verse 20 then the two exiled groups are groups there, the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph. They are two, the two groups, the northern and the southern kingdom. They'll be united and blessed by the repossession of the land. Again, that was partially fulfilled in history under the Maccabees, but we won't go into that. But in the New Testament, it's only been fulfilled through Christ. Uh, both Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. And so the blessing then is a new land. Uh, not the return from exile, nor the present secular state fulfill the promise of God's kingdom. It's not the kingdom of this earth, but it's a new creation. As Jesus so told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this earth, not of this world. And so the repossessed land in Obadiah finds its fulfilment and an imperishable, undefiled and unfading inheritance in the new creation. And so verse 21 brings it to a, a close with two affirmations. Firstly, the execution of judgment on Edom by the saviour or judges from Jerusalem. Uh, they will judge the Edomites and execute justice on the last day as they reign with Christ, which Paul repeats for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, where the saints will judge the world. And the second thing is that final glorious promise, the Lord is King, always sovereign, though hidden, but now acknowledged in full expression. And uh, to quote Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven, The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the result is the people will rejoice. And, and to close then in, in Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5, Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the centre of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. And there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun. For the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. Amen.